0: Today, no one champions lobotomies. The bloodletting that contributed to the untimely death of George Washington is long out of vogue in the medical community. In a few years, will we be feeling the same way about puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and sex change operations? Welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. Hey, I'm just finishing We Will Not Be Silenced by Erwin Lutzer. Now, as I noted in my last podcast, at 79 years of age and with decades of leadership experience in one of the historic churches in our country, Erwin Lutzer is not a reactionary zealot. Personally, I love it when a person like Lutzer, with the wisdom of a longer and deeper look at life, writes a book about cultural shifts. And here's what Lutzer says. In this book, I shine a light on several cultural trends that I see working against us. And when Lutzer says us, he's referring to Christians who are intent on living a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. He continues, I also try to encourage the church to keep its focus and understand that the gospel we believe also has implications for how we view culture and how we treat one another. Now, what we need to know is that Lutzer is not waving the banner to take back America. He's not against people. He is, however, concerned that the church has submitted to culture in ways that jeopardize its belief, its influence, and its witness to the gospel. Now, in chapter 6, which he's entitled Sexualize the Children, Lutzer chronicles the rapid shift in the views of Americans toward same-sex marriage, and he points to education and technology as that which has facilitated the shift in public thinking. Now, in one respect, we can say, well, I get it. Technology has accelerated many things, but why education? Lutzer writes, Peter Hitchens, in his book, The Rage Against God, writes, that the youth movements of Nazi Germany and communist Russia were very similar. Any ideological or revolutionary start must always alienate the young from their pre-revolutionary parents if it hopes to survive into future generations. Hitchens, he said, should know because as a correspondent in Moscow, Hitchens saw firsthand how communism operated. As for Nazi Germany... Lutzer writes, Hitler was right. He alone who owns the youth gains the future. Now, my intention in reading that part of the book is not to be incendiary. You know, there's a lot of great education being done today, and I don't for a minute want to say that every new educational initiative is intent in alienating children from their parents. Neither would Lutzer. At the same time, we do have to realize that every educational effort is designed with purpose in mind. It's why we educate. And it's that purpose, that strategy, that Lutzer sees as detrimental. Now, hang with me here because this is going to take a while. But as to the detrimental educational strategy, Lutzer points to the comprehensive sexuality education curriculum that was created by Planned Parenthood. And he uses this as an example of the type of education that is working to shift the mindsets of children away from that of their parents. But what Lutzer wants to do is he wants us to go beyond that to think about the consequences such early sexual education brings. So let's listen to what he
1: says. Without the consent of the parents the comprehensive sexuality education curriculum is being introduced in many schools. This curriculum was created by Planned Parenthood and the Sexual Information and Education Council of the United States, CICUS, which was founded by a devout follower of Alfred Kinsey, a pedophile who believed that children can be sexual from birth. The emphasis is on how to have sexual pleasure either with partners or alone. Lisa Hudson describes what is taught. Students as young as four or five are taught that parts of their bodies feel good when touched. This is called masturbation and that they should always masturbate in private. By the second grade, they learn that the same act can be performed with a partner. In brief, all forms of sex, as long as it is consensual, is normal and to be enjoyed. Boys are taught how to wear condoms, and girls are taught how to put condoms on plastic replicas of male genitalia. They are given graphic images of various forms of characters experiencing sexual pleasure. Through all this, parental authority is consistently undermined. What is not taught is what we already know. This kind of education stimulates the desires of children, leading to various expressions of sexuality that end up destroying and defiling their souls. The Effect of Early Sexual Activity on Mental Health is a 2018 report that evaluated 28 studies of peer-reviewed medical literature from 1966 to the present. Researchers found that early sexual debut increased levels of depression, suicidal ideation, aggressive behavior, psychological distress, anxiety, stress, loneliness, poor well-being, regret, and guilt. It also increased negative social behavior, such as substance abuse and risky sexual behavior.
0: Okay, hang with me, because I want to connect the dots between the stats that Lutzer just gave us, those stats that chronicle the damage being done to our children by this early exposure to sexual education, particularly without a Judeo-Christian morality, and the rush to normalize transgenderism, and H.R. 5, what I feel is inappropriately labeled the Equality Act. Now, let me start with the Equality Act. And some of you might be thinking, man, why won't you let go of the Equality Act? I mean, who's not for equality, right? Well, hear me. I'm among those who affirm the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the benefits it has brought. Now, that said, I'm not in favor of the Equality Act which would amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include, quote, sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes. Why? Well, it's not because I'm against people or against equality. We must protect the civil liberties of every American and we have to protect people against unjust discrimination. Hey, if a transgender person walks into a hospital is refused service because of being trans that's wrong we have to protect anyone from that kind of discrimination however hr 5 actually fosters inequality under the banner of equality and my concern is that the long-term results of this piece of legislation will take us down a path that will lead to more problems for our children in the future because we've worked harder to use the words of Lutzer, to sexualize our kids. So let me share four reasons I have a problem with the Equality Act. The first three are for context, and the fourth one speaks to this issue of is sex change operation the lobotomy of the 21st century. So here goes. The first reason we should have a problem with the Equality Act is that H.R. 5 repeals the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, also known as RFRA. Now, you got to hear this. This was a bill passed unanimously by the House and by a 97-3 to 3 vote in the Senate. And current President Joe Biden, who's pushing so hard for the Equality Act, is one of those who voted for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act back in 1993. And what is so interesting is that the RFRA was initiated to protect religious freedoms. That is, to grant equality to those whose religious beliefs were being jeopardized by governmental overreach into their First Amendment rights. So I'm asking myself, why does the Religious Freedom Restoration Act need to be repealed? And how can the so-called Equality Act be deemed equality when it strips freedoms so clearly identified in our Bill of Rights? Second thing, H.R. 5, by amending the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include, quote, sex, including sexual orientation and gender identity, close quote, could create a legal conundrum by placing religion and sex as federally protected classifications. We have to kind of think about this, but litigation seems the only solution when, in the case of SOGI legislation, the two protected classifications, religion and sex, clash. And at that point, freedom is taken out of our hands and it is put in the hands of the courts. That's problematic. The third reason we should have a problem with the Equality Act is that H.R. 5 strikes at the freedom envisioned by our founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence. This is absolutely fascinating to me, but in the last letter that Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, the last letter he wrote emphasized what kind of freedom he envisioned in the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson used freedom not only in reference to political freedom but he understood freedom as quote i'm quoting jefferson's last words quote the free right to the unbounded exercise of reason and freedom of opinion close quote now my concern with hr 5 is that freedom of thought robust dialogue and respectful disagreement, which marked the pages of American history, will be squelched. I mean, H.R. 5 squelches the thought, it stifles the dialogue, and it brands those who disagree bigots. Freedom of opinion, something to which Jefferson declared I have the free right and unbounded exercise, is suffering. From cultural suffocation brought on by H.R. 5. Just the other day, one of our employees wrote a letter to our PA senators regarding his opposition to H.R. 5. And our Pennsylvania senator wrote back to let him know that while he champions the rights of all Americans, and this senator has a fabulous record in doing just that, he said H.R. 5, and I quote, would eviscerate religious liberty protections, a pillar on which this country was founded, thus paving the way for government to force entities and individuals to abandon deeply held beliefs. Period. Close quote. Now, if we pause to think about all that, we realize we've got some challenges. So how do we move to dialogue that creates a workable solution? Well, that is a difficult question and one for another podcast. But let me go to point number four and why I think we should have concerns about the Equality Act. H.R. 5 empowers a transgender fad among minors. You see, that's some pretty strong language, how so? Well, I think what it does is it codifies transgenderism as normal, it normalizes and the idea that I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, or vice versa, you think about that, that thought would have been considered for centuries self-evident nonsense. And yet today, H.R. 5 would codify that thought as normal, and I think in part because it doesn't want to infringe on the feelings of those who are in the midst of that transition. So what does that do? Well, as Abigail Schreier has noted in her book, Irreversible Damage, how transgenderism is destroying our daughters, she says this. Gender dysphoria, listen to what she says, formerly known as gender identity disorder, is characterized by severe and persistent discomfort in one's biological sex. All right, we get that, makes sense. She goes on. It typically begins in early childhood, ages 2 to 4, though it may grow more severe in adolescence. But in most cases, nearly 70% gender dysphoria resolves. And historically, gender dysphoria has affected only a tiny sliver of the population. How tiny? 0.01% and almost exclusively boys. And Abigail Schreier is one sharp lady. She has undergraduate work at Cambridge, I believe, and she has a law degree from Yale. She says that before 2012, there was no scientific literature on girls ages 11 to 21 ever having developed gender dysphoria. Now let's think about that, because now we're taking something that has been relatively insignificant And we are codifying it as normal by writing it into H.R. 5. And I believe that what that will lead to is more studies down the road showing how early sexual education actually increases levels of depression and suicidal ideation and loneliness and poor well-being and all those other things to which I referred earlier on. Now hear me. I don't mean for a moment to come across as callous or disheartening or ignore the challenges that many with gender dysphoria face. At the same time, I'm asking myself, and I think we all need to ask ourselves, will we look back ten years from now, twenty-five years from now, and say, this was the lobotomy of the twenty-first century. This transgenderism was the bloodletting of the twenty-first century. Because we codified as normal that which is just not normal. And in doing so, we actually facilitated more of the challenges we sought to overcome relative to mental health. And as studies are coming in and firsthand accounts are showing, many of those who transitioned are now transitioning back or trying to transition back, but now at a great psychological and physical cost. And I think down the road, attorneys are going to be lining up at the door of those who've transitioned, and they are going to be seeking to recover on behalf of their clients damages from doctors and counselors and insurance companies and drug manufacturers from those who've helped to bring on a new dysphoria that, what have I done? Why did you let me do this? So I'm looking at all this, and I'm saying... Is sex change the lobotomy of the 21st century? Well, time will tell. For now, I agree with Lutzer. The great enemy of the radical transgender movement is science, and the scientific findings are showing us reason to have great concern. They should be causing us to say, whoa, wait a minute, maybe this isn't such a great idea after all. And I believe two places we should stop and examine this issue more carefully are, first, the comprehensive sexuality education put together by Planned Parenthood with the help of the other group, and two, H.R. 5, the Equality Act, that, in an attempt to provide non-discrimination, may be doing more to normalize non-binary sexuality, which in turn is going to bring on, in the long run, more problems, more frustration, more dysphoria of those who with a longer look say, what have I done? Well, that's my thought on my walk with Erwin Lutzer and his excellent book, We Will Not Be Silenced, responding courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity. And now the question is, what will you do with that thought on your walk through life today.